Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. We're back in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning in verse 13, and we'll be working our way through chapter 10, verse 10. And tonight, once again, we're talking about wisdom. Wisdom. Uh, so let's read our text while we're to prayer and begin our study. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of a fool rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to the rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron or the axe is blunt, and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. Should, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Pray that you would apply it to our hearts and give us wisdom to do so. We ask you for that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I hope you're all doing well. And we're uh, pressing on through our study in Ecclesiastes. We're at chapter 9, and tonight we're going to be looking at uh, the mere fact that wisdom, the wisdom of God, is better. The wisdom of God is better. In our previous study, we looked at chapter 9, and closing off there in verse 11 and 12, we see there that human ability cannot guarantee success. Um, he says there in verse 11 that it's, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, and so forth. And so it's, it's basically telling us that we cannot rely on our own abilities. As a matter of fact, more frequently than not, the people who do trust in their own abilities, their own gifts, their own talents, and their own flesh are the very people that are, are caught unsuspectingly and suddenly in their own devices. We see that taking place even in our society today in the realm of politics to some degree. Well, tonight in our passage, in verse 16 of chapter 9, we're told that wisdom is better than strength. He, he mentions that wisdom is better than three things. First of all, he says it's better than strength. Secondly, in verse 18, he says it's better than weapons of war. And then thirdly, in chapter 10, verse 10, he states that wisdom brings success. And that's all speaking clearly of the wisdom of God. It's obviously much better to have wisdom from God than to trust in our own abilities and in our own ingenuity. Uh, that's not always a wise thing to do. We need to see that wisdom is better. It's better in just two simple ways. First of all, we see it here told to us in verses 13 to 19 of chapter 9 in the parable of a besieged city. It's a simple little story we're going to look at, which demonstrates that God's wisdom is far better than man's, even though they may be a great ruler. And then secondly, in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 10, we begin to see how Solomon shares these Proverbs with us. And it talks about uh, Proverbs about folly, about foolishness. 
And sometimes you have to find what is best. To find out what is best or what is better, you have to look at what it's not. And so Solomon here is teaching us about foolishness. He's teaching us about folly. And he's demonstrating that the wisdom from God is much better to have in our lives than our own foolishness. And so we first see this in the parable of a besieged city in verses 13 to 19 of chapter 9. Look first of all here at the impact of such wisdom on Solomon. Look at how he starts off this section in verse 13. He says, I have, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. And then he says this, and this is the first time he actually says something like this, this phrase. He says, it seemed great to me. It's the first time he uses a phrase like that. He's never used it before. The New American Standard translates that, it impressed me. The NIV says it greatly impressed me. And so here's Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived under the sun, with something impressing him, and that's the wisdom of God. And so he gives us an illustration. He gives us a parable. And uh, seeing the impact, but secondly, we see here the influence the influence of one man's wisdom. And that's what this parable is meant to point out to us. It says there that he delivered the city. Uh, you may wonder what influence you may have as one person in the world. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe in your family, maybe in your work, whether you work for a big or large company, obviously the, the influence that you would have would change with those facts. Um, Maybe you just, for work, you just sit in front of a computer screen all day and punch in numbers or data or, or crunch code. Um, maybe you feel you're not having much influence. Or maybe even the political realm, when we think about this upcoming election and, you know, okay, we're going to go, we're going to make our one little vote. Is it really going to make any difference? Does one vote really matter? Uh, sometimes we feel like, what difference do we make? Have you ever questioned your influence in this world? Most of us have, I would guarantee that. Um, this should show us what kind of influence we can really have, this study tonight. Look at the description of this man in the parable. In verse 15 it says, But there was found in it, in the city, a poor wise man. A poor wise man. Now from the standards of the world, who was this individual? He was someone who was poor. He wasn't looked up to. This guy's really poor. And though the person in the parable uh, was insignificant in the eyes of the world, he was very significant in the eyes of God. Why? Because he was wise. Because he possessed the wisdom of God. See, when you have God's wisdom, you are a very powerful person before God. The influence of one man. Well, what was his influence? It says he, by his wisdom here, it tells us that he delivered the city. So this great king comes against the city and against this poor man with all his power, with all his authority, with all his might, yet one poor wise man delivers the whole city. Now, we're not told how he does this. The text doesn't tell us. It's just a parable. We're just using this as an illustration. Um, but you can read stories of how one man or one small group of individuals changed history forever throughout the world. You know, you can read uh, stories like that all over the place. I remember one story that was told of an Israeli army captain back in the Six-Day War. And we're told in the Old Testament that Hezekiah uh, built a tunnel that was built from the Pool of Shalom out beyond the eastern side of Jerusalem. And he used that to supply water when they were under siege. Well, back in the Six-Day War, history tells us that the Jordanians were storming the wall from the eastern side of Jerusalem. And the Israelis never had the city up to this point, the old city. And well, this army captain, this Israeli army captain, led a group of soldiers through Hezekiah's tunnel, a tunnel they had never been in before. 
a tunnel they found only because they followed what the Old Testament said. And they didn't know what, what might befall them when they entered this tunnel, um, but they made it out on the other side, and actually they were out on the eastern side of the wall. And it found them in the location perfectly staged behind the attacking Jordanian soldiers. And in an interview afterwards, um, someone asked the army captain, what made you think to do such a thing, to take your men through this tunnel? How did you know it was even there? And the army captain replied, he says, well, you know, I entered a, uh, a Bible contest, a Bible history contest, and I memorized most of the Old Testament. And as we were in the middle of this fight, there seemed no other way out, and I thought, boy, I remember reading something about this tunnel. Let's see if we can find it. And they did, and they used it in that case. He said the hardest part of the whole situation was getting his, his uh, army soldiers down in that tunnel. You can imagine it's, it's in the middle of a war. I mean, somebody could have easily thrown a grenade in there and killed all of them if they would have known they were there. Um, I've been in that tunnel, actually, and uh, it's a very interesting experience, an interesting hike. You're hiking through um, this tunnel, which is very close quarters and pretty much knee-deep uh, water. Uh, but it's really amazing. And, you know, we had a guide and flashlights, and there was other people with us. Can you imagine, in the middle of a war, sending your men through this tunnel? And so one man made a huge difference in that situation. Or even in the story of Tiberius in the same war, uh, Tiberius is the only city of the Decapolis that's still standing from the time of our Lord uh, today. It, it stands and it uh, looks over the, the beautiful Sea of Galilee over there in Israel. And it's really a city of hills. And it's a thriving city. They have shops and restaurants and all sorts of things. But during the war, the, the Syrians were making their way over the Golan Heights and down around the Sea of Galilee, and they were about ready to take uh, Tiberias, which, by the way, had been abandoned by the Israeli army, except for five or six soldiers that they left there. Uh, they really didn't think someone would, would attack it. And so they used those forces, the main regiment of the army, the Israeli army, somewhere else. And so they moved everybody out of there, and you had a handful of soldiers there, and all of a sudden they see the, uh, the Syrians approaching by land around the Sea of Galilee to this small little village of Tiberias. And they didn't know what to do. If they tried to run, they'd be out in the open. They'd be mowed right down. So they had some ammunition and they had this small little cannon. And they took this little cannon, the story says, and they began to move it. They'd fire it at one point and then they'd move it maybe 25, 30 yards away, they'd fire it again. They did this time and time and time again. And it sounds like a really crazy idea because they're rolling this cannon up and down the hillside, firing it off at different times. And, uh, but it worked. The Syrians actually believed that the, the Israeli regiment of the army was still there because of all this fire that was coming in from different locations. And you know what? They turned around and they went back. And they really defended this, this city with just a few men. And um, today, actually, if you go to uh, Tiberias, you can see the monument there. They took this cannon that they used and they, they put it up and, and kind of made it a, a decorative monument. And there's a little plaque there and they call it Little David. Uh, you know, David and Goliath and, and that whole story. Well, that's, that's they call the cannon Little David because it, it really deceived the enemy in that case. And here you just had a small group of people, but they had a tremendous influence. See, that's the story here. Um, it isn't, your influence doesn't come from your past. Your influence isn't out of your background or how much you have in the bank. It comes down to simply whether, you not, whether or not you possess the wisdom of God. Do you have the wisdom of God? Well, we see the impact. We see the influence, but also here look at the indifference of the people in verse 15. The text says, yet no one remembered that poor man. Here you had this poor wise man in this city. He defends the whole city. We're not told how, but he defeated the king. But it says, yet no one remembered him. See, don't think for a second the world is going to highly be impressed with our influence. It, it won't be, because it's doing just the opposite. 
the world by one sinner, one person who is against you, can undo all the good that you have done. And that's what he says here. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. See, that's the other side of this story. We need wisdom from God to be the people of influence that he desires us to be and that he calls us to be. But don't think for one minute that the world is going to praise you for your decisions when you use the wisdom of God. Uh, we're not going to necessarily achieve world acclaim. But we should seek God's wisdom just the same because it's important. Um, even though there will be many people that despise you as a result, they don't want to hear the wisdom that's from God. They don't want to know what God wants them to do. They don't want to listen to the wisdom of God. So there's an indifference here of the people toward the wisdom of God. No one remembered that poor man that he acted here in delivering the city. But you know what? There's good news here. It's not here, but it's in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, the good news is that God will not forget. God will not forget what you do through your wise choices and through your, your acts of obedience and, and using the wisdom of God in your life. Other people may not notice, but God doesn't forget. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, it says, For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. See, whatever you may have done, whatever influence that you may have had that maybe nobody else notices, you don't think anybody else even thinks about it. Whatever ministry or service you may have done for the Lord, take heart because God will never forget that. The Bible says that every cup of water, something as simple as giving somebody a drink of water, shall not be forgotten when we do it in Christ's name. Well, what can we learn from this little parable? What are some insights that we can gather here? Look at, at verses uh, uh, 16 to 18. First of all, we see the superiority of wisdom. The superiority in, of wisdom. Um, he says their wisdom is better than might. See, wisdom is something that's focused on a lot in Scripture. We have what we call wisdom literature in the Bible. The books of, of Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. They're all called books of, of wisdom. And if you... Just read through the book of Proverbs. Just read the first chapter. And you'll see it's filled with points and parables and, and understandings about God's wisdom. He says in verse one or chapter 1 of Proverbs, verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth. And then in verse 7, we know that verse, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of knowledge. But it says, fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, wisdom is really showing us how God wants us to live here in this world. And so he says, wisdom is better than might. That's what the parable is here. But you know what? The world has its own parable. The world says that's not true. The, 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 the parable the world has is strength is better than wisdom. Strength is better than wisdom. Um, strength to them, success to them, all that is, is something that they put above everything else. And they're not really concerned about what God says about anything. But God says just the opposite. God says it's better to be poor and wise than rich and be a fool Wisdom will always save the day. So the superiority of wisdom. Ask yourself, do you believe that? Do you believe that it's superior to everything else? If you do, let me ask you this question. Are you searching for it? Are you asking God for it? Are you seeking for it with all your heart? Like you would a hidden treasure of gold or gems. Pray that God would make you a, a wise person in this world. Whatever you do, you tell him, you know what, I just want to do what you want me to do. Give me your wisdom, God. Wisdom in always, is always what God wants us to have. 
even though it is in many times in direct conflicts with what the world wants us to do. The wisdom of God and the way of the world totally oppose each other. So we see the superiority of wisdom. But we also see the failure to hear what wisdom has to say in verse 17. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. See, not many people are listening today to the wisdom of God. And it says here, wisdom spoken quietly in contrast to the shouts of somebody who's a king or an authority over you. The world is not listening. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul points that out, that if the leaders in Jesus' day would have listened to the wisdom of God, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. People fail to listen and desire to know God's wisdom. But thirdly, here in verse 18, we see the damage one sinner, just one, one sinner can do toward the wisdom of God. It says, but one sinner destroys much good. One sinner destroys much good. I mean, the general world will not remember what the wise man has accomplished. You're not going to have your name on a plaque somewhere. And you know what? Just one rotten apple can destroy the whole barrel. That's what he's saying here. He's saying folly, foolishness is so dangerous. Why? Because it destroys the work of God's wisdom. One sinner can do a lot of harm to the good that God has done. And we've seen that throughout, throughout the world, throughout our nation. We've seen it throughout even churches. Churches go along doing wonderful things for years and years, and all of a sudden some sin befalls their leadership or, or someone in their congregation. And the whole integrity of the church and the ministry is compromised. So we see here basically what he says to us about the idea that this parable of this besieged city really, city really shows us the wisdom of God and how important it is. But then we get here to chapter 10 and we begin to see Wisdom is better, and he points it out through Proverbs about foolishness or about folly. Um, now, foolishness and folly don't have to be with just having a good sense of humor or being humorous. That's not what the Bible's talking about there. There's nothing wrong with that at times. Uh, folly in the Bible specifically deals with wickedness. It deals with sinful practices. It deals with things that are the opposite of what God would desire. Um, it involves sin, frankly. The fool in, in the book of Proverbs, as you read about the fool, there's certain things that describe him. Things like, words like adulterous, um, not being wise with handling money, uh, tearing people down, doing things at the wrong time, saying things with the intent of hurting others, wrong purposes, wrong motives. See, it's not just goofing around or acting silly or foolhardy. That's not what Solomon's talking about. As a matter of fact, if you just look back in the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 17, it tells us, I'll just take you through a couple verses here, because it talks about folly. It talks about foolishness. In verse 17 of chapter 1, Solomon says, And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So he studied it. He just didn't observe it. He actually studied it. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly. So he was studying this. He was considering it. Verse 12 of chapter 2, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. Or verse 13, and I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than darkness. He says it's not even a comparison. It's like trying to do something in complete darkness. It doesn't make any sense when you act foolishness that way, when you act foolish that way. Um, verse 19 of chapter 2, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Or verse 17 of chapter 7, 
Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. He equivocates the two. Um, chapter 7, verse 25. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And even here in our, our text, he the last verse there, verse 10 of chapter 10, he makes a statement, dead flies make the perfumous ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. It just takes a little bit. It doesn't take a lot. Uh, it literally means, this idea of foolishness, this idea of folly, it literally means, in the original language, thick-headed. Somebody who's thick-headed, they just can't learn. They keep on repeating the same things over. They're foolish. It denotes any deviation of mind from what is true, good, right, and wise. Um, a fool is someone who follows the allurement of this world. They're searching after the next big thing, what's coming down the pike. They've got to have it. See, God's wisdom in our brains will cause us to stop. It'll cause us to pause before we go there. We'll say, wait a minute, is that really wise to do that? And foolishness is condemned in no uncertain, time, no, no, no uncertain terms throughout Scripture. It's condemned. Uh, even in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11, we've heard this verse, like a dog returns to his own vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. See, Solomon here points out four things about folly. He gives us four things in these parables in chapter 10 in these Proverbs, you might say, in chapter 10, that he's talking about folly. You see there in verses 1 to 3, he starts off, dead flies make the perfumous ointment give off a stench. What's he talking about? He's talking about something as simple as a little tiny fly. If it gets caught in the perfumer's ointment, the whole batch is done. It makes the whole, the whole perfume stink. And see, the devil's trap is, is basically telling us this. You know what? Just a little bit won't hurt anybody. Go ahead. It's just a little folly, just a little foolishness, just a little sin. A little folly is not okay. A little foolishness is not okay. That's what he points out. He says it's like a fly in the ointment. It stinks. And it, it makes the whole thing putrefied. It's a good way to destroy a Christian's witness. Well, what are some insights we can gather from this? You know, it damages your reputation, he points out. But he says, as to the presence of folly in verse 2, it's already in our hearts. We all have a little bit of this in us. Some of us have a lot more. Foolishness, folly. It says, a wise man's heart, verse 2, inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, I know some of you... in really into politics, like to make this illustration. Oh, that's what the Bible, has nothing to do with that. It's not talking about politics here. What are we trying to do? It's the same heart. He's saying sometimes your heart can be foolish. Sometimes it can be wise. One heart, two desires. It's got to make it between right and wrong. So we all have it. We all have the presence of folly in our heart. But in verse three, he talks about the practice of folly. He says, even when a fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. What's he saying? That it's easily recognized. It produces immediate effects on our testimony. Foolishness does. Um, contrasted to wisdom, contrasted to the wisdom of God, sometimes you can have a wise person and you don't know they're wise. It's not evident right away. Now, maybe over the long term it might be, but not right away. But what, what this verse is saying is that somebody who's foolish, someone who's folly, filled with folly in his heart, and just living against the wisdom of God, that's evident immediately to everybody. It's easily recognized. And see, this should put pressure upon us as believers of followers of Jesus Christ that we should live in accord with our calling in Christ that we should have a desire to be what God wants us to be. Now, yeah, sometimes we fail, sometimes we fall. But that's even a reminder from God that, hey, you know what? Don't think you can go out there and do this Christian thing by yourself. You can't. You need me every moment of every minute 
every minute of every moment of every hour of every day. We need to trust in God. That's why he's given us the word. That's why he's given us the Holy Spirit. Frankly, that's why he's given us the church to encourage one another, to come together for fellowship. We can't do it on our own. If you're thinking you can, you're sorely mistaken. We need to stop trying to be what we think people want us to be and trusting God to make us into the person that he desires us to be. That's what Paul really is saying when he says in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify, what? The desires of the flesh. How are you not going to gratify the desires of the flesh? How are you not going to sin in your life? Well, you have to walk in the Spirit of Christ. You have to ask him to take control of your life. If you're in control of your life, you're in a world of hurt. Proverbs 12, 16 tells us, a fool's wrath is known at once. Why? Because they just blow up about any little thing. It makes no sense. We've all maybe been there or we've met people like that. But a fool's a wrath is, is known at once. They, they have no boundaries. They, have no, they don't care about anybody else. And if something ticks them off, they just let everybody know. It's known at once, but it says a prudent man covers shame. A prudent man covers shame. In Proverbs 13, 16, every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool lays open his folly. Or in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11, a fool vents all his feelings. You know, some people just wear their emotions right on their sleeve. You see exactly what they're thinking. But a wise man holds them back. A wise man holds them back. Why? Because if you just let your emotions out all the time, I'm just being true to myself, and this is, you know, if you don't like it, this is who I am. You know, that's going to hurt your testimony eventually. Because your emotions are not always right. Sometimes your emotions can be led astray. So it has the potential to damage your reputation. But then it also demands your patience. Your de it demands your patience. Look at verses 4 to 7. It points out there, if the anger of a ruler rises against you, so someone in authority over you, a ruler of some, maybe it could be your boss at work, I don't know. He says, do not leave your place. In other words, don't just get frustrated and run away from the situation. He says, for calmness will lay great offenses to the rest. There is an evil act. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. So what's he saying here? It demands our patience. It demands our patience. It demands your patience when your, your ruler and his attitude is set against you. Verse 4. See, when a, when a ruler has folly or foolishness in their life, what, what Solomon's trying to get us to see is, look, you know, your boss could be a complete idiot. He could be a complete fool. But that doesn't give you the right just to pack up and run away. Don't just get mad and run off. See, any fool can start a quarrel. But God tells us to hold our post. Because thinking it through, calmness will pacify very great offenses. In other words, just because your, your boss is an idiot or a fool and he's making foolish decisions, he's saying you have to be patient in that situation. Proverbs 20, verses 2 to 3, it says, The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. In other words, you don't want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with your boss if you don't have to. If there's a way that you can kind of create calmness and, and work around it, it's best. And that's what it says in verse 3. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Or Proverbs 26, 4, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Um, we need to be reminded of that. We don't have to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with everybody. So it, it, it demands patience 
when the attitude of the ruler is against us. But it also demands our patience when the actions of the ruler do not make good sense. You know, there's, there's one thing that really irritates me is when someone's in authority or someone's in, in leadership, but they're incompetent. It just drives me nuts. And that's what he says here. He says, the error proceeding, verses, verse 5 there, from the ruler. He takes someone who is foolish. It'd be like at work, your boss hiring somebody and then figuring out, boy, this guy's a real doozy. He's just foolish. He has no wisdom at all. But you know what? Your boss promotes him. And then he promotes him again. And you, you're sitting there going, what, what is he doing? Right? There's error proceeding from the ruler. He takes someone who's foolish and he gives them a great position. He promotes them. He honors them. But we need to meet foolish action, actions with God's wisdom and with prudence. You don't want to just go to toe, to toe with your boss over something like that. Proverbs 26 verse 1 says, Like, summer, like snow in the summer or rain in a for harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Like one who binds the stone in a sling is one who gives honor to a fool. Or verse 12, chapter 12, verse 16 of Proverbs. The vexation of a fool is known at once. We read that, but the prudent ignores an insult. The idea there is prudent. It, it, it basically has the idea in our English language of making good use of your words and making good use of your time. Um, understanding when to say and what to say. You don't just come full, full bore, bore at somebody. You have to remember, you know what? The Lord said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That may not be your, your role. You may just be there to be a good testimony. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 16, every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. See, how to react then confronted by a fool? How do you react? I mean, sometimes, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I just want to give them a piece of my mind. Unfortunately, I can't afford to lose any of my mind at this point, but sometimes you just want to blow up at them. But that's not what a wise person would do. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds back. So we see here that this idea of foolishness damages your reputation. It demands your patience. But then also here in verses 8 and 9, it deserves God's judgment. See, don't think for a moment you're going to go out there and be foolish, especially as someone who's following the Lord Jesus Christ, calling themselves a Christian. You're going to go out there and fool around, commit sin, and you're not going to be held account for it. You will. Don't ever think you'll get away with it. Even with a little foolishness in your life. That's what the enemy wants you to think. Oh, it's not going to hurt anybody. Nobody's going to see it. Nobody's going to... You, you don't know that. And your testimony could be tremendously harmed. And the testimony of Christ, the testimony of your church could be harmed. Proverbs 26, verse 10, tells us this. The great God who formed all things gives the fool his hire and the transgressor his wages. See, God is in complete control of this whole thing. In verse 8, we see the principle of judge, judgment. Look at what he says here. He gives us two illustrations. Um, he talks about somebody who will dig a pit and fall into it. And then he talks about somebody who will break through a wall. Notice what he says here. He who digs a pit will fall into it. Now, what's that mean? It means, you know, you're not digging a pit for put a tree in or put a lamp post in. That's not the idea. You're purposely out on the path, digging a pit, covering it up so somebody else will fall into it so maybe you could rob them. That's, that's the idea. It's doing something maliciously here. This isn't some guy working out in his field digging up a, a hole. No. This is somebody who has evil intentions. And what he says is he who digs a pit will fall into it. Uh, it has the idea of misleading somebody. Uh, 
Proverbs 28.10 says, Whoever misleads the upright into an evil way will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will have a, good, goodly, a goodly inheritance. Whoever misleads the upright. So that's what this pit is. The pit causes an upright man to go astray. You're hurting somebody who doesn't deserve to be hurt, is the point. And so, he doesn't say they may fall into their own pit. No, he says they will fall into the pit. And, you know, you see all these accusations flying around the political world nowadays. And now it's coming right around, you know, the, the, the coming home to roost, as some would say, right? It's coming full circle. And the people that are accusing certain people of something are the people that did something. Pretty crazy times we live in. But then he uses a second thing here. He says, whoever breaks through a wall. In other words, you don't have any regard for somebody's private property. You're just out there doing whatever you want. That's, that's not right either. Um, and he wants us to know that you know what? If you break through that wall, there's probably a serpent waiting on the other side. Something is going to happen. Something will happen. You don't get away with things like this. Um, and that's what he's pointing out. And he, all you have to do is read over in the book of Amos, Amos chapter 2 specifically, verses 4 to 8, it talks about how when uh, uh, Judah and Israel were transgressing the, the Lord, he's going to hold them account. He's going to bring judgment in verse 5, he says, So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall deliver the strongholds of Jerusalem. Don't think for a moment that just because you are a Christian, just because you are in Christ, you can go out and live however you want. God will hold you account to account. And what he's saying here is, whether it's you're digging a pit, or you're trying to break into a neighbor's house, those are foolish things to do. And you know what? They will have consequences. They will meet the judgment of the Lord. But then look at verse 9. He says, he who quarries stones is hurt by them. What's he speaking of here? Somebody who's out in the, the quarry just doing their job. They could be hurt. That's kind of a dangerous job. The idea is that the possibility of consequences is always there. Whether you're a righteous person, just working hard at work, or you're a wicked person. You could be out there digging a pit, you're going to fall into it. But here, he says, he who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. And the idea is they may be endangered. Um, they may be hurt. It's not a guarantee like the other, the other verse, verse 8. There it says he will fall into the pit. He will be bitten by the, the serpent. But here it's, it's painting a picture of somebody who's just a righteous person out there doing their work. Well, you know what? Solomon says they could get hurt too in performing their job. There's a possibility of consequences there. But you know what? There's, there's a, great, a great assurance of the judgment of God if you're out there purposely doing things to harm others. That's kind of what he's saying. And so we see that it damages your reputation, the idea of foolishness. It demands your patience. It deserves God's judgment. And then lastly here, verse 10, it dulls the iron or the axe. It says if the iron or axe is, is the idea is blunt or dull and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. See, what he's, what's he saying? He's saying we came full circle. He's saying basically this means a person cannot achieve objectives or accomplish success through their own means, through their own wisdom. Um, sharpening the iron here is speaking of getting God's wisdom, of using God's wisdom in your life. But foolishness, what's that do? That dulls the edge of the ax. You know, if you've ever split firewood, you know what it's like to use a sharp axe versus a dull axe. It takes a lot more work to split the, fire, the firewood if you have a dull, unsharpened axe. But if you have sharpened that axe, 
and it's ready to go, boy, those, it just splits, splits the wood right up. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10 tells us the way of a fool, that would be the doll axe, <laughs> is always, is right in his own eyes. The way of the fool, or the doll axe, is right in his own eyes. But he who heeds counsel, let's call that the sharp axe, is wise. See, don't go out there just trying to do whatever you want to do because you think it's the best thing to do. That's not the point. The point is, wait on God, ask God for his wisdom. Well, how do we apply all this? You know, we've seen that wisdom is better, clearly. We've seen it in the parable of the city that he, he talked about, the besieged city, where one poor, wise man has an incredible amount of influence and, and spares the city. Uh, wisdom is better than strength. Wisdom is better than, than weapons of war. And we saw it in the beginning of chapter 10 here about the, the Proverbs, about foolishness or folly. How it damages our reputation and demands our patience and deserves God's judgment and dulls the axe. Well, turn in the New Testament with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want to read this. And this is kind of a, just an application for us as believers. Um, God demonstrated wisdom to us when, God, when Christ died on the cross. Uh, that's, you know, people looked at the cross and they said, oh, that's foolishness. Well, it's foolishness to those that are perishing. But for those of us who are being saved, we see the wisdom of God. Follow along in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly, there's the word, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, whether you're Jew or Greek, whether you're Jew or Gentile, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Jump down to chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming, this is Paul, to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you, except what, Paul? Except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Verse 6, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age, look at what he says, or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. Then look at what he says in verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, speaking of the age of Christ, or even today. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What's Paul saying? Paul's telling his readers there, hey, don't be impressed with rulers. Don't be impressed with leaders. Don't be impressed with big politicians or big businessmen who by the world standards look like they have arrived. They're at the top of their game. Don't be impressed by all that. And what Paul's point is, look, the rulers in Christ's day were very impressive, the religious leaders. But guess what? Those are the ones who crucified the Lord of glory. So they really didn't have that much wisdom. And you know what? The application for us is sometimes we do the same thing. Sometimes we go off, you know, in our Christian lives and do whatever we want. And we're, we're not searching after God's wisdom. We're not doing what God wants us to do. 
Sometimes we're crucifying Jesus afresh by our own foolishness in our own lives. See, the wisest thing a person could ever do is, first of all, to believe in and then to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation. The fact that Jesus died for our sins. He died a perfect death. He lived a perfect life. But then, on the third day, he rose from the grave. See, when Jesus died, he completely paid for our sins and for all the sins of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in Christ on Calvary. He paid them completely. He's our resurrected Lord. And the Bible says he's coming back again. And see, no matter what anyone says, that's true godly wisdom. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you gave your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to impart to us the wisdom through salvation. And Father, we pray for those who have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ. I pray even now that you would draw them to yourself as only you can, through the power of your spirit, through the power of your word. And Father, we pray that you would show them their inability to save themselves, that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. I want to turn from my sin to the Savior. Father, that's a, a prayer that you will answer when it's prayed from a sincere, broken heart. And Lord, for us believers, help us never to forget that each day we live, we should be living it prayerfully, asking for the wisdom of God to do so. Help us not to try to do it on our own. Lord, we try that and a lot of times we end up failing. Lord, this Christian life is not an easy life, especially when it's lived completely for you and to your glory. And so, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't do things in our own lives that would hinder our testimony amongst those who have yet to trust Christ or even amongst those who have trusted Christ. Father, I pray that our lives would be lives that honor and glorify you. We ask you to do this through us. and We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.